Well, I'm glad to be with you again this morning. I wore my glasses and my striped shirt to try to be as much like Will as possible. (laughs) But he preaches better, so that'll end shortly. But um, for those of you who are here, when my parents were here, or you heard the announcements as uh, they went on for a couple weeks, you may know that my dad was a police officer. He's retired now from the police department. For all growing up, uh, when I was well, from when I was born, through my uh, through my youth, all through high school, my dad was a Los Angeles police officer. And from the ages of probably about four to when I was about ten, my dad was a drill instructor at the police academy. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen or been near Dodger Stadium, but the police academy at that time was right across the street from Dodger Stadium. It's up on a hill. And there's a lot of hills there, and they're, they're good-sized hills, and there's quite a few. And my dad, one of his jobs as a drill instructor was to get the recruits ready by running them up and down these hills. And so he would leave to work in the morning at 5 a.m., and usually he was home about 3 o'clock because... Um, the recruits would get done, and then they would go home and study for their tests, learn the law, learn uh, public speaking, um, learn about laws and, and regulations for police officers, and then they would come back and start over. And the academy was usually about six. Uh, at one point, they changed it to nine months, but it, it was around six to seven months. And so he would do this every day. He would go into work, and he would teach some classes on law and public speaking, and then he would do their physical training. And so his job was to run the recruits, and as they progressed through the academy, they would run greater distances and at quicker times and, and speed up the runs. And so by the time they graduated from the academy, a lot of the recruits, you would see them when they started and see them when they ended and graduated, and they had lost about 15 to sometimes 30 pounds because they were running so much. And especially the recruits that started in the summer classes. So if they started May, June, July, or August, those ones burned a lot of, a lot of calories. Uh, anyway, he would come and he would run the recruits and then to stay in shape because he was in his, his early to mid-30s going into his 40s, he would come home and, and run in the afternoons. And so my dad would run probably about 15 to 20 miles a day. And when he would come home as I grew up and he would go on these runs, he'd come back and I always wanted to, to go with him. You know, um, if you're a son of a father, at times you, you want to do what your dad's doing and you want to shadow your dad. I have two little shadows that follow me everywhere. Um, and sometimes I'll turn around and I'll knock him in the head or, you know, bump into him accidentally because I don't realize they're there, but they're following me all the time. And so just like that, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to run with him and I wanted to follow him and I wanted to learn to run like him and I would go to work with him occasionally and it was a weird experience for me because my dad's a fairly gentle guy and and pretty gregarious he's pretty happy-go-lucky but he transformed to this different person when he was a drill instructor (laughs) and I remember the first time I saw him yell at recruits and we were walking somewhere and, and a recruit class came by and one of them was running and accidentally bumped into him and he just went into this tirade on this recruit and it kind of like threw me back. And it was almost like my dad had gotten possessed with some kind of drill instructor demon. But then I, I kind of watched him do his thing and it, and it was really cool as a kid to see my dad training these police officers and as he would come home, I would ask him, he goes, no, you're too young, you're too young. Well, I, I remember the day he let me go on a run with him. And I went on this run, and I thought it was the coolest thing. I could barely keep up with him. But I did. I'm sure he was slowing down and not running as far. But in my mind, I kept up with my dad. And I kept doing this, and he kept asking me to go with him. Well, I really wanted to run with, like my dad. And so I watched how he, you know, how he moved his arms and how he moved his legs and how he took his steps and the cadence he did. And my dad would talk, and I would talk about these things. And so as we started running, I started watching and trying to emulate him. Well, then I found myself watching my own hands and seeing if I was moving my hands like his hands. And then I started watching my feet. And one day we went on this run. I said, okay, we're going to go a little bit further and we're going to go a little bit faster. Stay up with me. 
So, okay, that's fine. Well, I felt like I, I was starting to run with, like him, but I needed to just run like him a little more so I could stay with him. And I started watching my hands, and I started watching my feet. And as I was moving my feet, I was keeping up with him. And then all of a sudden, I looked up, and he was gone. And I had no idea where he went. And I started calling out for him, and he wasn't around. And I started calling out for him louder, and still, no dad. And I started calling out as an eight-year-old would, almost in a crying call, getting ready to start bawling because I didn't know where my dad was, and he was gone, and I didn't know where I was. (laughs) We're in our neighborhood, and I recognized streets, but I had no idea how to get back. And just as I'm about to go into full panic mode, my dad comes back around the corner realizing that I'm not behind him anymore. And he comes and gets me and goes, where did you go? I "I was following you. He goes, well, then why weren't you with me? And I realized it was because I was watching myself run rather than watching him and paying attention to him and watching where he went and watching when he turned. Well, I realized that I needed to pay attention. So a couple weeks go by. And I follow him, and I don't lose him, and I keep going. Well, another run comes up, and I start going back into the same patterns of watching my own hands and watching my feet as I run. Next thing I know, I'm watching my feet, and I'm watching my feet go over cracks and jump over cracks on the sidewalk. And next thing I know, I'm seeing my feet move, and then I'm seeing this board come out of nowhere. And I hit this board, and I slide across it, all the way off of it into the gutter. What I didn't see was a park bench that had come up. And I ran right into it. And I slid across it and right off of it into the gutter. And I'm crying and I'm wailing. And my dad comes over and goes, what are you doing? What happened? Are you okay? I go, yeah, I hit the park bench. I didn't see it. He goes, how did you not see that park bench? Well, at this point, I'm... I think I remember being embarrassed that I hit the park bench because I wasn't looking up. I wasn't watching my dad. I wasn't seeing where he was going. He avoided the park bench. I didn't because I didn't see him move because <laughs> I was watching myself. You know, in, in a lot of ways, our walk, our journey in the Christian life is a run. And this morning, we're going to Look at that. We're going to look at how the writer of Hebrews talks about this race that's set before us. And we have a path that's laid out for us. This journey of Christianity. And we've got to keep going and we've got to keep running, but there are so many things that can become impediments to us running this race well. If you turn with me to Hebrews, like I said, chapter 12. In verse 1, in this journey of faith and sanctification, sometimes we fail to run this race well because we fail to understand the purpose of the race and our motivation in it. In Hebrews chapter 12, This Christian life is illustrated as a race that's set before us. Similar to Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. I'll cross-reference that in a second. But the writer of Hebrews describes this journey of faith as a race. Paul describes it as this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Therefore, or excuse me, Well, read Hebrews and then I'll reference 1 Corinthians. But let's read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 together. It says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you don't grow weary and give up. There is a race set before us. It's the journey of our faith. And each of us has our own individual journey, and yet collectively as a church, and even as I mentioned last time I preached, we're in this together. We're racing together. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have this cloud of witnesses before us. Let's look at that verse again. Therefore, since we also have such a loud, a loud, excuse me, large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. <clears throat> As I mentioned before, there's that therefore. The therefore is therefore the before. It's a marker in scripture. It tells us that if there's a therefore and especially coupled with a since, therefore since, it's a clear marker in Scripture to look backwards. It assumes that you've just read the previous qualifying statements, the previous arguments. It's saying, look at the argument laid out prior in this Scripture and see how it undergirds what I'm about to say. We have a, loud, a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Who are these witnesses and what does witness even mean? We've all heard the term witness. We live in a country that has a judicial system that oftentimes requires witnesses to convict someone of a crime. And oftentimes it's a witness who's someone who's seen what's happened and then it can attest to what's happened, saying, I saw the defendant. Can you point out the defendant to me? He's sitting right there or she's sitting right there. I saw he or she do this thing with my own eyes. And thus, I believe they committed this crime. I saw he or she steal that car. Are you sure about that? Yes, I am sure. I saw it with my own eyes. There's that type of witness. And then there's another type of witness. The type of witness that actually participates in something. I was there, I did it, I saw it, here is my testimony. Kinsey, this morning, was a witness to what Jesus has done in her life. I am a witness to you this morning, standing here, of what Christ has done in my life. All of you, Lord willing, are witnesses. We stand here together of what Christ has done in our own lives. Not only that, but we look back, the therefore, at Hebrews chapter 11. And we're given a list of people. And you can look at it briefly, but I'll go over and give a summary. We're given a list of people who are not just spectators. They're not just people who've witnessed something and said, yeah, I saw this, but I don't know the details because I wasn't a part of it. These are all a list of people who have actually participated in this journey of faith. They're past race participants. This chapter is often referred to as the hall of faith. Hebrews starts off by faith. This is a list of people who have lived by faith. It starts off by faith. We, we as God's people, understand creation. By faith, Abel. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Sam, David, Samuel, the prophets, those tortured because they looked for a better country. It lists all of these people out and what their faith was, how they believed and why they believed. Each of them were commended through their faith. By faith, each of these people lived. 
That's why it's called the Hall of Faith or referred to as the Hall of Faith. Look specifically at Hebrews 11, verse 6 for me. Hebrews 11, verse 6 makes it clear that this journey, which has been taken by so many before us, this large cloud of witnesses, was always accomplished by faith. Verse 6 says this, Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Let me read that again for emphasis. Without faith, it is impossible to Not hard, not difficult, not unlikely. It's impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Since the one who draws near to him, comes close in relationship to him, must believe two things, two factors that faith plays out. One who in faith draws near to God has two requirements. A belief that God exists. He must believe that God first exists. And the second, that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So what does faith require of us? This Christian faith. Well, number one, that God even exists. Lots of people have faith. There's that famous song, you got to have faith, the faith, the faith. But faith in what? There's a lot of people who call themselves religious or spiritual. That's the, the term now. I'm a spiritual person. Well, what does that mean? Like you believe in spirits? You believe there's something out there? You believe that there's more? Okay, great. The demons believe that. You have faith? Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in whom to do what? We've got to have faith that God exists. And not only that, but he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's an earnest seeking, an earnest drawing, an earnest longing to know God. And the people in Hebrews 11 desired that. They saw their surroundings all the way from Adam to the present time, to those who torture, were tortured for their faith. They saw the culture around them. They go, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than just growing up, raising a family, going to job, I work every day, making money, eating, watching TV, getting up the next day, doing it all over again. Then you get old and you see your grandchildren and you die. I mean, reality is when you put life in that context, it sounds useless that we're just all here doing the same thing over and over again for no reason. There's got to be more to that. And each one of these people believed that there was more, that there was a purpose, that there was someone who put in place a purpose. He's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. So what's the reward for this journey? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why are you here this morning? Well, we'll come back to that. And it's in our, in our passage. But getting back, there's a whole large group of people whose lives are screaming to us, you can do it. You can run this race. You can go on this journey. You can finish and these people weren't perfect. Read through that list again. Guess who's in there? Rahab. Guess what? Guess what Rahab did? Rahab was a prostitute. She wasn't perfect. David, the man after God's own heart, yeah, he was a murderer. He was a murderer and he took multiple wives. And David even had, there's one point in the Bible that says David had a life-size idol that represented God in his household that his wife used to lay down in his bed so that people would think he was there. David looked down on a woman who wasn't his wife and called her up to him as an old king. 
That woman had hardly any choice in the matter. Abraham twice, two times, lied about his wife and said she was his sister. And his wife, Sarah, was taken by a Pharaoh as his wife. And he's living in the land going, well, at least I'm alive. These people weren't perfect. That should be somewhat encouraging to you. That this hall of faith, these people who were recognized and commended for their faith, they weren't perfect. And neither are we. But that doesn't mean we don't strive to be holy and righteous. It just means that you're not going to be perfect. And so Hebrews 11 is commended to us as these large group of people who have gone before us and they've lived imperfect lives. So if you're discouraged that you're imperfect in your walk of faith, it's okay. You're surrounded by a bunch of people who are in the same boat and they've made it. And they've said, keep running, keep going. You're not going to be perfect. Don't let that discourage you to stop you in your tracks. Keep going. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, people who have gone before us, even now you're sitting amongst witnesses in the sanctuary, as I said before, and we're not competing against one another. This is not a competition race. We're not trying to outdo one another. But sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes we look at each other and we go, well, at least I'm doing better than him or her or that family. At least our family's not like that family. That family comes in late every week. Talking about us. (laughs) At least we're not like them. Man, their kids are wild. That little one, he's got wild eyes. I'm just waiting for him to break something. This is not a competition. We sit amongst each other here to encourage one another, to be vulnerable with one another. The greatest opportunity for sin to grow, like mold, is when it's unexposed and kept in the darkness and allowed to breathe. And vulnerability amongst us in this church should allow us to expose sin, to confront it, and to walk with each other through it. But when we're in competition, you want to keep someone at their lower status. You want to keep them behind you rather than saying, come up, run with me. Together, let's do this. And I know you're hurting, and I know you're struggling, and I know you're weak. Let me help you. Let me encourage you. Let me carry you. The Bible says to bear one another's burdens. And when we're not vulnerable, it's because we think it's a competition. I want myself to look better than you. That's not true. I have areas of weakness and failing, and so do you. We're together as part of the great cloud of witnesses, the people who have gone before us, even days, even right now, statistically there's some saint who's passing away right now into glory. And their lives are witnesses of what Christ has done in their life. For them and to them. We're supposed to encourage, admonish, strengthen Admonishing even those who are close to quitting. And even admonishing those who haven't jumped in the race. There are people who sit here week after week after week, and I don't know who they are, but Jesus does, who haven't even jumped in. They're looking at the race going, I know everybody's running. And it sounds good, and it sounds like it's encouraging, but I just don't believe it. They haven't jumped in in faith yet. We encourage them and go, this is what's going to happen if you don't believe. It's not a game. We're running a race away from fire and an eternal damnation. And there's this great cloud of witnesses that says, keep running. I've done it. It's worth it. And this great cloud of witnesses continues on. That surrounds us 
It's telling us to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles. So we've got this great cloud of witnesses, and then we've got these obstacles to the race. What are the obstacles? Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily entangles or snare ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we're in this race. There's a bunch of people that have raced before us. And they're encouraging us to keep going. But what are these two impediments? Well, this is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. The whole point of the book of Hebrews is saying to endure, to fight, be alert, be strengthened, don't drift, don't neglect, don't be sluggish, don't take your eternal security for granted. These are the main points of the whole book. Seeing all of these are in support of the main point of this text, which is to run. Run the race. Do whatever it takes to run. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump. Okay, Forrest Gump is this mentally challenged boy who grows up in South Carolina. And when he's young, he has to wear these braces on his legs because they don't work properly. And he gets into all these precarious situations. But the main, one of the main themes of that movie is to just keep running. No matter what happens in life, to keep running. And one of the ways that this main theme is plotted out is the dialogue, run, Forrest, run! It's said over and over again. The first time he runs, his friend Jenny tells him, run, Forrest, run, because he's getting rocks thrown at him. And he starts taking off. And he runs so fast that his braces break off. And he keeps on running. And he keeps on running. And he gets to college and he's a water boy. But then they put him in and they hand him the ball. And he just keeps on running right out of the stadium. (laughs) And he goes to Vietnam. And his friend, his brother in arms, tells him to run. And he keeps picking up his fellow soldiers who are injured and he keeps bringing them back and he keeps running back and forth. And later on, he gets hurt by his friend Jenny and he just keeps running. He runs coast to coast back and forth and he just keeps running. The whole point of this text is to run, keep running. But if we're going to keep running together, we have to ask the question, How do we do that? Life is hard. There's things that get in the way. And that's what this passage talks about. There's two basic types of impediments that are going to keep us from running well. The first type are encumbrances. And what are encumbrances? Well, encumbrances are things that aren't necessarily sin. Sometimes they actually could be good things, but they become Things that weigh us down, that keep us from running well. The things that the Bible doesn't specifically say are sin, but they're distractions. They keep us complacent. They keep us discouraged. They even distract us and help us to lose focus. Could be books, which are good things. Reading is good. But they distract us from reading the Bible. And learning about the God that we're supposed to be pursuing. Could be work. Work's a good thing. We were made to work. Could be sports. God made our bodies to be athletic and to be physically fit. And yet, how many kids are out playing sports today? And their parents have taken them. Even Christians. They're traveling around playing with their sports teams. Even ministry can become an encumbrance. When you say, this is my ministry, this is my church, this is my thing, and if other people get in the way of that, 
Well, I'm going to let them know that this is mine, that God gave this to me. And when you put it that way, ministry is bad. Ministry is an encumbrance. There can even be good things that keep us from running the race well, that slow us down, keep us distracted. The parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 1 through 26, we see that. Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. And there's a sower that goes out and he sows seeds in a field and some of it gets on the ground and there's no dirt there. And so it shrivels up and doesn't even really have time to take root. And then there's other seeds that are cast into shallow dirt and they grow up a little bit and the sun comes out and it scorches it. And then there's seeds that are cast among the weeds. And as it grows up, the weeds grow up around it and choke it out. Jesus says, those are the troubles of life that choke out faith. We have encumbrances that can do that to us, that weigh us down. They seem good or they seem normal. They seem okay. They're respectable in their sin-like nature. No one's going to say to you, why are you doing that? But they hold us up. You know, no runner running a race would wear snow boots, a parka, and ankle weights. If you saw someone go up to a race line at the Olympics and they've got a parka and snow boots and ankle weights on, you're going, what is that person doing? (laughs) They're not going to win that race. That's dumb. Take those things off, man. Maybe they're just warming up. And then you hear them on your marks and they get down, get set. And they've still got them on. You're like, no. They're not running in a way that's going to win the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.24, as I spoke of earlier, Paul says this, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Letting these encumbrances stick around. And they're different for everybody. I just gave a couple examples. But you know the things that are keeping you discouraged, complacent, lazy, unfocused in your Christian journey, in your race. They're going to be different for everybody. Going to bed late so you don't wake up early and spend time with the Lord. Making your life so busy that nothing else can be filled with it. Whatever these things are, you need to think about them. You need to examine your life and go, what is holding me up from running this race well? It could be relationships. It could be friends. Take off those encumbrances so that you can run well. And then there's a second type of impediment. The second type of impediment is actually sin, where the Bible calls it out. And it easily ensnares us. It entangles us. It trips us up. These can either be omissions. It's failing to do things that you know you're supposed to do. And then there's sins of commission. There's things that you are doing that you know you're not supposed to do. Omission, things that you know Things that you know you're, you're supposed to do and you're not doing them and commission things you're doing that you know you're not supposed to. Those, those are the two types of sins. The Bible says don't do this thing. Don't be in this type of relationship. Don't be angry in this way. Treat others in this way. Don't cheat on your taxes. Don't lie. Don't have hatred in your heart towards a brother. Whatever those things are, they're sin. And we know our conscience makes us aware that we're doing wrong. And it ensnares us, it enslaves us. It's the Psalm 1 thing of don't sit. In the seat with scoffers. Sometimes you go, you know, I'm just going to, 
I'm just going to hang out with these people because feel, I feel like they've got a good philosophy of the world. And they're mockers of God and you sit down with them and the next thing you know you're going, yeah, they got a point. Yeah, you know what? My mom and dad didn't, what they said to me, I don't, I don't think I agree with that anymore. What the Bible says, there's so many things that seem to conflict in the Bible. I don't know if I buy it. And what my parents told me or what people have told me about these people and what they do, they're so nice. These people are so nice. They must have it wrong. And so we sit down in their company. It's a lot. Taking the lush, green, grassed land down in Sodom and Gomorrah. Next thing you know, he's got people banging on his door saying, send out your visitors so that we may know them. Having to offer up his own daughters to this mob. And he lost two daughters that way. And you know, you think, it wouldn't happen to me. I had a friend who I worked with. We went to college together. Had the same theological teaching. He says, you know, I want to go down and help this church plant in Hollywood. And we're going to go down there and we're going to share the gospel. I said, you, you, you need to be careful. It's a dark place. And this guy was into, into script writing and he was good. He was, he was a good writer. I go, you just got to be careful because you can get sucked into that world. He goes, no. He goes, I, I appreciate the warning. We're, we're good. I feel like the Lord's calling us. And to this day, he's fully immersed in that world. He and his wife are divorced. He's into new age stuff. He denies the gospel. And he was one of two friends that the other one I had warned to, and they're both just living in the world. And I can think of four other people just off the top of my head that that's happened to. And I'm not just saying Hollywood's like, it is a dark place, but Medford's dark. Applegate's dark. Central Point's dark. Pacific Northwest is dark. The United States is dark. We can find places that will ensnare us if we're not careful. It's the love of money. It's the pride of life that keeps us from living authentically together, bearing one another's weaknesses, hurt, and burdens. Now, sin can easily take a hold of us like an animal caught in a trap. That's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into heaven missing an eye than for you to perish in eternal fire. There's certain types of animals, if their leg gets caught in a trap, they will nod off because they know it's better to live than to die there in a trap. Brothers and sisters, we need to fight sin that way because it's holding us up. That sin will trap us and keep us there and we will die in our sin. We take our eternal security for granted. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. What I'm saying is there's some people who are running alongside the track and they're like, oh, I'm with everybody, but they're not even in the race. And they get entangled and they're like, well, I'm here. I'm just going to live in this trap. Because sin, that's what sin does. It entices you. It says, oh, this is so good and it feels so good and what they told you was a lie about it. And slowly, it takes you captive and it's hard to get out. Apart from Christ, it's almost impossible. That particular sin, it's impossible to get out of sin as a whole. We're to run this race with endurance. So throwing off the encumbrances, throwing off the sin that entangles us, throwing off the parka and the snow boots and the ankle weights and the trap, the the ball and chain that's tied around our leg, kicking those things off and running. And we're to run with endurance. What is endurance? It's a steady determination to keep going. Keep going. You're determined, I am not going to stop running. I may need to walk, I may need to limp, but I'm not gonna stop. That's what endurance is. 
Why do we need endurance? Because this isn't a sprint. This Christian race is not a sprint. It's not the 40-yard dash. It's a marathon. In fact, the word here, the Greek word here, and I don't usually bring out the Greek, mostly because I don't remember most of it. (laughs) But the Greek word used here is the same word we get our English word of agony. It's agony. It's hard. I heard a, a comedian one time talking about, he's like, man, imagine that guy who, the Greek guy who took off the 26 miles to bring news and after running that distance he just collapsed and died and now we celebrate that by for leisure running marathons (laughs) that poor guy (laughs) I don't know if you've ever run a marathon I've watched it and I've gotten tired I've never run one I know it looks like I run marathons all the time, but (laughs) they're brutal. One of my close friends talked about how he ran a marathon and he was getting close and he kept hearing this tapping, this tap, 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 tap. And he didn't know what it was and he didn't want to look around and he's, you know, bleeding and is, you know, and all of a sudden he hears the tapping getting close and he couldn't figure it out, but he just kept going and kept plotting. Next thing he knows is this blind lady is passing him and that was the tapping the tap 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 and he goes man a blind lady's passing me but he finished like seven hours later <laughs> which I laugh but it'd probably take me ten hours I've never even run a marathon This is a marathon and it's hard and it's brutal and you will want to quit and you'll feel exhausted and you'll hit that, what runners call the wall and you'll bang up against it and you won't want to finish. But the great cloud of witnesses says, keep going. It's a marathon and it's brutal and you'll get tired and you'll get weary. So what's our motivation? If it's so hard and it's so agonizing, why don't we quit? Because of the glorious prize. The glorious nature of the prize that waits us. And not just that awaits us after the fact. Rarely do we talk about a prize before you get to the end. But guess what? In this race of faith, we get to partake of the prize now, but it gets even better later. Before you hit the finish line, you get, to, you get part of the glory and part of the prize. Look at verse 2. What's our motivation? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we look back at verse 1, and then we look back at chapter 11, the great cloud of witnesses culminates with Jesus. See, he's not just our Savior, but he's also our exemplar. He's the perfect one. He did it. He ran the race. When Jesus came down and he took on flesh, he too was tasked with his own race. He was the greatest runner there has ever been. But not only is he a witness who was the greatest runner ever, He's our motivation, and he is the prize itself. We keep our eyes on Jesus as the source of our faith and the prize that we strive for. So what's our motivation? It's Jesus. Not only do we strive to run like Jesus, we strive after Jesus. Jesus is our satisfaction. He's our joy and our salvation. God is everything for us in Christ. 
He's our Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's our river and bread of life. In him, we will hunger and thirst no more. I can continue to go on about Jesus. But ultimately, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and throw off the impediments and stop striving in ourselves, looking at our own feet and our own hands to make sure we're running like we're supposed to, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, he transforms us into his image. It's a funny thing. When we stop watching ourselves and we start keeping our eyes on Christ, we become more like him. The greatest of all the race runners. Chapter 11 is meant to culminate in chapter 12 at the beginning with Jesus, the greatest runner. He is the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame's most famous runner. I don't know if you've ever been to a trophy rooms, but trophy rooms have, you know, these small side shelves and little trophies and pennants and all these things. There's usually one prime spot reserved for the greatest athlete or the greatest team that's been in the history of that school or that organization. Jesus has the prime trophy room because he's the greatest runner. But not only that, he's the source Of our faith. Remember, Hebrews 11 commends us for the faith, commends them for the faith. You can't run this race without faith. It's our fuel. It's our motivation. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We were made to run this race for the glory of God and the satisfaction that comes in Christ. That's the purpose. Why do we run? That's our motivation is to get Christ, to get more of him, to become more like God in Christ. There was a great British Olympian who later became a missionary to China, Eric Little. If you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, he's the main character in this movie. Eric would later die in a Japanese internment camp in China during the war. And he once said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Brothers and sisters, that's not just true of an Olympian who God made fast. That's true of you and me. God made us for a purpose, And even if you're not fast, if you run, we will feel his pleasure. You were made for the purpose of running this race in faith, motivated by faith, by God's grace to pursue him. And I promise you that you will taste and see that God is good if you earnestly seek after him. When Mark preaches here the next couple weeks, he's going to get more into this. That we're motivated by joy and the glory of God and the satisfaction that we receive in Christ. God made us for himself. And when we run this race of faith, looking to Christ as our source of motivation and joy, we find satisfaction despite the agony. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. That's a promise. That if you pursue God in Christ, you will taste and see that he is good. I'm always conflicted and and interested to hear from someone where they say, yeah, I tried Christianity, it just didn't work out for me. Well, what do you mean you tried Christianity? Like I said, I think it's that person who's running alongside the race. It's that little boy who's running alongside, pretending he's one of the runners. But this is a marathon, and eventually that little boy's going to quit. He's not in the race. He's not in it to win it. 
And I think those people are like, yeah, I tried Christianity. There is a difference between faith in something, faith in things about God, and a genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ that transforms your heart. I know, I've lived it. I grew up in church and didn't get saved until I was about 16. Even though I prayed a prayer in Sunday school and I clearly remember it. There was no distinct transformation until in my heart until I got down on my knees and I said, God, I know I've prayed this prayer, but my desires have been selfish and for me and for my own pride and for what I want and they have not changed me. I don't know if this is going to do anything at this point, but I need you and I want you to come in and transform my heart and I want to live for you, even though I know that's going to be hard. And that's when it happened. Now, it hasn't been easy. It's been agonizing. There's been painful times where I wanted to give up. But since that time, the Lord has led me and he's picked me up and he's kept me going and he's my motivation and my joy and my satisfaction. I've taken my refuge in him and I am happy. Even in times of anxiousness and sadness and turmoil, there is joy and peace. Well, we run this race with endurance for God's glory and our good. Remember, he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Now and in the future, God is our delight because of Christ, and we run this race by the grace given to us through the gift of faith. You can't do it apart from faith. If you try, you will fail. When we try to get in this race or run the race on our own, we fail. Our prize is Christ, and we have an already and a not yet reward. We already get to taste of God and taste of Christ and see that he's good. But guess what? It gets better. We can taste and see that God is good, but we still live for a better country, our homeland, a city prepared for us where there will be no tears, no pain, and we will be made perfect. Like I said, right now we can taste and see of the goodness of God, but our senses are dulled. It's like having a cold and eating a good piece of fruit. You can kind of taste it, but it's not fully there. We see the goodness of God, but we don't see it fully. We're looking through a glass dimly. But guess what? Our future reward is going to be even better than what we receive now. The satisfaction we have in Christ will be amplified exponentially when we get to heaven. We'll taste and see the fullness of God. So what's the finish line? What's the finish line? Well, the finish line is verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. See, the joy that was before Christ was that he was going to gather to himself, to the Father, a people to worship him. And as they, as they are dependent on him, as we are dependent on Christ, for his grace, he gets the glory. This is how Jesus endured. He left the glory of heaven behind. He took on human form. He became lower than the angels. Why? Because Jesus knew that the joy set before him, the joy of doing the Father's will and gathering to, him, to himself, to the Father, people to worship God forever and ever, that this was Godhead's plan. That was his joy, that he would gather to himself a people. And so he endured, and he did endure. He endured agony as seen in the garden. Have you ever been so distressed that you've sweated drops of blood? I haven't. I've been nervous and anxious and scared and sweated and my stomach's churned, but I have never been so in despair that drops of blood have poured out of my forehead. And Jesus was in despair over dying on the cross, but that wasn't the worst part. It wasn't 
the whipping with the cat of nine tails. It wasn't the mocking. It wasn't the being punched in the face and having his beard ripped out. It wasn't the nails in his hands and his feet and then being hung on the cross. That was all terrible. But the worst part is that Christ took our sin on the cross and the father turned away. He had never been separated from his father like that. To never have been separated from his father and because of no fault of his own, to have his father look away. You have never endured anything like that. But because of the joy set before him, knowing that he was purchasing a people to himself to be forever worshipers, he endured and he got up there and he took the beatings and the mockings and the people mocking him that he was the king of the universe and the king of the Jews when he was and he didn't get himself down, but he breathed his last and he commended his spirit unto the Father. And he's alive now and he's seated at the right hand and he's making intercession for us. We have a living Savior who is looking and saying, I'm here. You can do it because of me. I'm your motivation. I'm your satisfaction. By faith in me, you can do it. Keep going. And guess what? I will give you satisfaction and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and love and self-control. I will give you all the fruit of my spirit if you look to me and if you run in me and if you look in faith to me. But apart from me and faith in me, it is impossible to please God. Brothers and sisters, you will be tempted to give up You will grow weary of fighting sin. You will sometimes look at the world and see how how they seemingly prosper. You will. If you haven't yet, you will. Any number of those things. You'll see and hear the calls for tolerance and be labeled a bigot and want to just acclimate to the culture. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you of this. This momentary and light affliction that we suffer, the agony, it's really light and momentary compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. Even tasting and seeing that God is good, it's, the agony is light and it's momentary compared to the true weight of joy that we have in Christ. This is the race that's set before us. This is the joy that's set before us. This is what we're here for. Brothers and sisters, if you're not running well, look at your life and see what's entangled you. See what's ensnared you. See what's weighing you down and get rid of it in faith. Ask the Lord to help you get rid of it. Earnestly pursue the Lord. Seek after him and he will be found. Be motivated by Christ to seek him and you will taste and see that God is good. If you've never tasted and seen that God is good, it's a good chance that you don't actually know him, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That you're just faking it till you make it, but guess what? You can't fake it and then make it. You have to empty of yourself the pride that you have and say, I don't know you, Jesus Because Matthew chapter 7 says, many on that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Didn't we do miracles and proclaim you and such and such and all these spiritual things? And they say, depart from me. I never knew you. You doers of lawlessness. You sinner. I don't know you. I don't have a relationship with you. That's the verse that rocked my world. And I go, I don't know Jesus. I know him. I know about him. But I don't know him, and I want to know him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to humble yourself and repent and seek him, and I promise you will find satisfaction in God. You will taste and see that he is good. That's the race set before us. The race that all the people in the Old Testament that we read about, this hall of fame, That's what they endured through, and it was worth it. They looked for another country where God was the king, 
And many of them didn't see it. They never got to see Jesus, the fulfillment of God's plan. And their faith was so real. They look to things that are unseen. But the things that are seen are they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's what they looked for. And that's what the Bible calls us. That's what the writer of Hebrews calls us. Run. Because the things that are coming are way better and they're real. The satisfaction in God is more real than anything this world has to offer. So run the race. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Keep running, endure. It's worth it. Later on in my life, I decided that I wanted to be a police officer too, and, but not full-time. I already had a job, but I still wanted to do it. And so I had to go through the academy. And I had to run up these hills, and it was brutal. There was one that was called Cardiac Hill. <laughs> I don't know if they just named, well, I know they didn't just name it that to scare you because it's actually a huge hill. And you go up and down. In the first couple weeks, you're running three to four miles, and then by the time you, you're finished, you're running eight to ten. But I remember in the first week, I was running, and a drill instructor comes up to me and gets in my face. He goes, Bargus, because it's on your front and back so they can yell at you. He goes, Bargus, you got someone on the job? I go, Yes, sir, my, my dad. Goes, was your dad a drill instructor? Yes, sir. He was my drill instructor. And I go, oh, great. <laughs> he goes, ah, oh, I thought so. And later he came to me after we were kind of resting, getting water. He goes, you know what? He goes, you run just like your dad. It wasn't by watching myself. It was just, it's my DNA. My dad's in me. I run like him. I can't help it. If Christ is in you, you can't help it. You'll run like him, but you have to pursue him. You have to seek him. Don't get caught up watching yourself and trying to figure it out. It's faith in Christ. He's our motivation and our joy. Brothers and sisters, run after Christ. Run because of him. Run by him. He's our motivation. He's our salvation. He's our joy. But keep running. Do whatever it takes to keep running. And whatever it takes means going to Christ every day and begging him for faith and mercy. Just like a man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He will. He will do it for you. And you will taste and see that God is good. Let's pray together. And as I pray, I'll ask the ushers to come forward. And we'll pray for our offering this morning. But let's thank the Lord for the race that's set before us as we run together. Gracious Father, We all have earthly fathers, and some of us had good, great fathers, others of us did not have good fathers, may not even know their fathers, and yet we see you as our good father who loves us, is benevolent, and you want the best for us, so much so that you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. He endured the shame and despised it for the joy of gathering to you a people who would worship you for all of eternity. We thank you that we have their stories and we can be motivated and encouraged by them. And yet Jesus is our greatest motivation. We find our joy in you because of him. We find our joy in you through him. So help us to cherish Christ, to love him more each day, to run with endurance the race that's set before us, and by his help to throw off everything that keeps us from running well. Father, as we give our gifts to you, I pray that they would be used to continue the work of the gospel. Thank you for this church. Thank you for each and every person that's here. 
I pray that you would encourage their hearts and motivate them to continue to run the race. And if there's anyone in here who is not running, who's just trying to fake it till they make it, Father, I pray that you would convict their heart, that you would remove their pride, and that Christ and the Holy Spirit would penetrate them and that they would repent of their sins and come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. Father, thank you for saving us. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. There is no other salvation under, under any other name but, but Christ. So we thank you. Bless this day as we continue to worship you individually and collectively, Father. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.